I don't but me. No. Okay, I'd ask if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. We're continuing our study of, of the book of Acts. We're this morning in Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 16. Acts 21, 1 to 16. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Acts 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to cause, next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. From there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we revived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, The will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is the word of the Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. Let's pray again together. Our gracious Lord and heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness and mercy to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, you are the God of gods. Lord, you are reigning and ruling in heaven, and Lord, you are our Father in heaven. Almighty God, we have been adopted as sons and daughters through the blood of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we recognize that many of the things that, that we face in this life are hard and, and we do not understand. So often we, we, we question, we don't know what you're doing. We don't know why we're suffering in the way we do. Yet Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ, to see his sufferings, and Lord, to see his victory that he accomplished for us as he didn't just die on the cross, he rose from the grave on the third day, victorious over sin and death and hell. And we praise you, Lord God, that his victory is our victory. And we pray, Almighty God, that you would help us to walk in the victory that he accomplished for us, the power of your Holy Spirit within us. I pray, Father, as, as we consider this passage together this morning, as we consider the sufferings of the Apostle Paul and what you're doing in and through him, may we follow his example, Lord Jesus, as he followed you. For we pray this in your matchless name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Half a league. Half a league. Half a league onward. All in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade. Charged the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade. Where was man then displayed? Not though soldier knew someone had blundered. Theirs was not to make reply. Theirs was but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. 
cannon on the right of them, cannon on the left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered. Stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell rode the 600. Flashed all their sabers bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabering the gunners there, charging the army while all the world wondered. Plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke, Cossack and Russian reeled from the saber stroke, shattered and sundered. Then they rode back, but not the 600. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon behind them, volleyed and thundered, stormed out with shot and shell while horse and hero fell. They that fought so well came through the jaws of death, back from the mouth of hell, all that was left of them, left of 600. When can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made. All the world wondered. Honor the charge they made. Honor the light brigade. Noble 600. Lord Alfred Tennyson penned the famous poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, minutes after reading the newspaper reports of the disastrous charge of the Roman, or sorry, of the, the British cavalry during the Battle of Balaclava during the Crimean War in 1854. Due to an error in communication, the Light Brigade, 600 men, all mounted on horseback, armed with swords, charged into a valley surrounded by Russian cannons on the surrounding hillsides and infantry with muskets in front of them on the valley floor. The brigade divided into two lines. The first charged against their target, but they were quickly mown down with, with cannon and musket fire. And then the second line charged into the fray, but miraculously they reached their objective crashing through the enemy ranks with flashing swords. But they didn't hold their ground for long. They were quickly repulsed in the counterattack and had to retreat all the way that they came, battered again by cannonade from the surrounding hillsides. And the valley was littered with dead and dying men and horses. As the smoke cleared, 260, sorry, 270 British men 40% of the light brigade lay dead or seriously wounded. The light brigade's charge into the cannon fire seems to, be a, seemed to be a disastrous mistake, but it can be argued that the bravery of those men commemorated in Tennyson's poem had an impact on the outcome of the war. The, the poem was instantly popular, and it was circulated even amongst the troops. 1,000 copies of the poem went to the front lines where the soldiers were fighting. And, and I think it could be argued that the depiction of the bravery of the Light Brigade inspired the soldiers to greater determination and acts of courage and heroism in the fight. And a year later, the Russians would surrender the city of Balaclava and the adjoining naval base and concede defeat. In our passage this morning, we see another charge into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell. The Apostle Paul charges ahead to Jerusalem in spite of repeated prophecies that he would be arrested and that he would be imprisoned and that he would die. Some would say it was a mistake. Some would say that Paul should have heeded the warnings and not gone to Jerusalem. Even James Montgomery Boyce, the great pastor theologian, says it was. He says that Paul may have been willing to die for Jesus, but that was not what Jesus was requiring in this matter. Jesus was not asking Paul to die for him. On the contrary, he seems to have been telling him not to die. Boyce even goes so far as to say that Paul was being disobedient. Now we've seen that the Apostle Paul was capable of erring. He was capable even of sinning. Notably in his separation with Barnabas over John Mark. But is this what was happening here? Was Paul disobedient in going to Jerusalem in the face of repeated warnings of what was going to happen there? Now I have great respect for James Boyce. And I think he's right almost all the time. But I think he's wrong here. I think he's quite wrong here. 
I'll make the case this morning that it was not disobedience. Far from it, that Paul was actually being extremely obedient. That he was following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ on the road of suffering. Our passage this morning divides into three scenes. In verses 1 to 6, Paul travels from, and his companions travel from Miletus to Tyre. And then in verses 7 to 14, from Tyre to Caesarea and the house of Philip. And then in 15 and 16, from Caesarea to Jerusalem. First of all, Miletus to Tyre in verses 1 to 6. Before going on to discuss the, the travel of Paul and his companions, Luke first returns to the departure of Paul from the Ephesian elders in Ephesus. The NIV here reveals the emotion of the moment that's reflected in the Greek verb, after we had torn ourselves away from them. This was, was a, a deeply distressing moment as these men who loved Paul so much knew that they would never see him again in this life. It was a painful parting. And it was painful, again, because of this, because of the, of the fact that Paul told them what was going to happen. But from there, the beginning of our passage reads like a travelogue, much as our passage began last week. Listing the stops that Paul and his, and his fellow emissaries from the Gentile churches made as they sailed towards Jerusalem. And the nautical details and terms that Luke here uses authenticate that this was his eyewitness account. Their small ship known as a coaster, which would have hugged the coast, making short day trips to ports along the way, between each location, putting in a port overnight until the winds came up again the next morning, and then they would sail again. First, they went to the Isle of, of Kos. It was the home of the medical school founded by Hippocrates, who is the author of the pagan Hippocratic Oath, an oath that is made by doctors to do no harm, an oath that is still solemnly vowed by doctors to this day, but ignored by those who practice abortion and euthanasia. Next, they came to the island of Rhodes, a trading port which, where once stood the 108-foot-tall Colossus of Rhodes, a, 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 an idol, a 108-foot idol to the sun god, Helios. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but 200 years before Paul's journey, it had been felled to nothing by an earthquake. Then they went to Patara, the site of the Oracle of Apollo. This is another pagan site. We, we talked about this where the, the, the python demon from Acts 16 had given the, the girl the spirit of divination to be able to actually tell fortunes. And this is what would, it was taking place at Patara. But we're about to witness a real prophecy from God the Holy Spirit. In Patara, Paul and his companions boarded a large merchant vessel to travel the, 500, the final 600 kilometers to the coast over the open ocean, first to Phoenicia. They passed the island of Cyprus and then continued to Tyre where the, the ship unloaded its cargo. In, in verse 4, Paul says that he and his companions disembarked and sought out the disciples. Now, Paul and Barnabas you may remember this, had, had, had traveled through the area. They'd been there previously in Acts 15 on their way to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council. But long before Paul had been there, Jesus had been there. In Matthew 15, 21, we read that, that Jesus had withdrawn to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is where he healed the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman who was possessed with a demon. But even before that, all the way back in Luke chapter 6, Luke records for us the people from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon had come to hear Jesus and to be healed of their diseases. And then later in Acts eleven nineteen, Luke tells us that the church had, had scattered as far as Phoenicia because of the persecution that began with the martyrdom of Stephen. So by the time Paul and his companions arrived in Tyre, there was a thriving church there. But now something strange happens. Look at the second half of verse 4. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now what is going on here? Paul had said that he was constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Now, through the Spirit, the disciples are telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. 
But what's going on here? As Calvin asks, how can the brethren dissuade him by the Spirit from doing that which Paul did testify that he doth by the secret motion of the same Spirit? In other words, how could Christians, by the Holy Spirit, try to dissuade Paul from doing something that the Holy Spirit had told him to do? Full explanation is going to have to wait for a few moments. But what we're seeing here is yet another example of Luke's spirit-inspired narrative genius. Luke here is revealing how the tension is mounting as Luke approaches Jerusalem. Then in Acts chapter in Acts 21:5, Luke records a similar pardon to that which he described with Paul and the Ephesian elders on the beach at Miletus. And it's a touching picture here again as, as Paul is gathered on the beach with those who love him. And here it's whole families. It's a whole church, husbands and wives and children gathering with Paul to bid him farewell. And again, Paul knelt down to pray, but this time he's not kneeling down to pray alone. They all kneel down to pray there on the beach. As an aside, I mentioned last week how Paul had knelt on the beach and that it was uncommon for Jewish men in that culture to kneel to pray, that more commonly men stood to pray. But that Paul doing so in that moment was, a, was an acknowledgement of the solemnity and the, the, uh, the, the, um, the, the anguish of that moment, and he was doing so in humility. And kneeling to pray would become and, and is increasingly common in the church. Tom and I were talking the other day, and he mentioned that, that James, the, the author of the eponymous book of James, had knelt so often to pray that, that he was known as camel knees. The church historian Eusebius records that James was so frequently found, situated upon his knees, asking forgiveness of the people, so that his knees became hard after the manner of a camel. Several years ago, when I was in Egypt, I noticed that that a number of the men there had a, a red, rough-looking callus on the foreheads. And after I saw this a few times, I was like, what's, what's going on here? And then I realized these men were, were kneeling on their prayer mats five times a day so that a callus formed on their foreheads. And I imagine it was, was like a, 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 a badge of honor to have a callus on your forehead from, from kneeling and, and praying to Allah. They had carpet burn on their foreheads. But of course, pray, prayers made to Allah are worse than useless, and those men's carpet burns bear witness to their idolatry. But may our knees bear witness to our worship of the one true God. So after praying together, they said farewell to one another, and Paul and his companions boarded the ship and the Christian families returned to their homes. Now in verses 7 to 14, we see Paul and his companions travel to, from Tyre to Caesarea and, and focus especially at the house of Philip. The ship departed Tyre and sailed the 40 kilometers south to the port of Ptolemais, which was called Acho in, in Judges 131. And here again, Paul and his companions sought out the Christians. They, they stayed with them for one day and then sailed 60 miles further south to Caesarea. And now they're, they're on the, the back door of Jerusalem. Now they're getting very close, only about 100 kilometers from Jerusalem. They disembarked and they, they went straight to the house of Philip, who Luke refers to as the evangelist. Philip hospitably opened his home to Paul and his companions. Now, Philip, remember, was one of the seven deacons who was chosen by the church in Acts 6 5 to, to, give, to give to the needy widows, the needy Greek widows. But the term evangelist is really apropos for Philip because he's best known for his evangelism, for his evangelistic fervor, notably of his witness to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And Philip, remember, continued to evangelize the whole region until he got to Caesarea. And there, evidently, is, is where he remained. And so it's now some 20 years later, and Philip is still living in Caesarea. And he has four daughters. The, the ESV refers to them as unmarried. In the original, they're actually referred to as virgins. 
But sadly, in our day, the, the terms unmarried and virgin are far from synonymous. We read again in Eusebius that three of these women actually lived into their 90s and they, they had seen many wonderful events and that they were actually, they met with the early church fathers and were able to provide the early church fathers with, with eyewitness accounts of many things that took place in the early church. It's, it's wonderful. But more significant to this narrative, Luke says that Philip's daughters prophesied. They prophesied. Now, this verse has wrongly been used as a proof text to justify women preaching. There is nothing in this verse to support that whatsoever. Paul does acknowledge in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that women could pray and prophesy publicly provided they did so with their head covered. This was a, a, a fulfillment of the prophecy that was in, in line with, with Joel's prophecy that was fulfilled in Pentecost, that God would pour out his spirit in the last days and that your sons and daughters shall prophesy, Joel 2.28. Now this is a rabbit trail, but I, I believe from 1 Corinthians 11.15 that, that this covering refers to a woman's hair. If you want to talk to me more about that after service, I'd be happy to do so. But women, women could not stand in the authoritative function in the church. They could not teach the church publicly because that would be a direct contravention of other passages in scripture, passages like 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. This isn't the point of, of Philip's daughters being mentioned here. In mentioning the fact that Philip's daughters prophesied, Luke's preparing us for another prophecy from another prophet. Verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, we've met Agabus before. He, he's the same Agabus who prophesied the famine over the whole world in Acts eleven twenty-eight. Now, this time, he's going to act out the words of his prophecy. It's reminiscent of, of Isaiah being, being told by God in Isaiah 20 to, to walk through the streets naked in order, to prophesy, in order to prophesy what was going to happen to the Egyptian and the Cushite captives, that they would, in turn, be paraded through the streets naked. It's also reminiscent of Ezekiel. It's being told, it was told to make a, a model of Jerusalem with a brick and then to prepare models of siege works and then to lie down on his side in front of the model. And, and it was, he was, was to do so to, for 390 days to represent the years of the Lord's punishment of Israel. So here in Acts 21.11, Agabus symbolically acted out the prophecy by, by taking the belt that would have been used to hold together Paul's robe and wrapped it around his own hands and his feet. And he declared, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Later in this chapter, in verses 27 to 33, Paul will indeed be seized by the Jews in Jerusalem and will be handed over to the Romans, will bind him in chains. And Paul himself describes this incident later in Acts 28, 17. Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Now Luke says in verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now it's not just the, the disciples who lived there, like in verse 4. Now it was Paul's companions, including Luke, who joined their voices to try to persuade Paul from going to Jerusalem. I think the NASB is better here. He says they began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. See, from verse 13, that they're actually crying. And once again, reminded of the, the heartbreak on the beach at Miletus and, and on the, the beach at, again at Tyre. Again, what's going on here? Okay, back in verse 4, we read that through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, by the Holy Spirit, Agabus prophesies what's going to happen to Paul. But notice that Agabus does not recommend a course of action. He simply declares what's going to happen. Those who were present were left to draw their own conclusion. And the prophecy was correct, but their conclusion was wrong. 
Again, the prophecy was right, but they were wrong. Out of sincere love and devotion to Paul, they didn't want him to suffer. But in so doing, they're unwittingly tempting him to to swerve from the course that God had laid out for him and had commanded him to follow. Again from Calvin. Surely this was no small temptation to cause him not to finish the journey which he had taken in hand, seeing the Holy Ghost to dissuade him from the same. And this is a very fair color to fly from the cross if he had cared for his own safety to be drawn back, as it were, from the hand of God. They were tempting Paul to turn away from what God had commanded him to do. Paul's answer comes in verse 13. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul knew full well what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit had told him as well. And by the same Holy Spirit, Paul was prepared for what was going to happen in Jerusalem. He had been told all the way back at the time of his call that he would suffer for the name of Christ. Three times already, Luke has recorded Paul's intention to go to Jerusalem. He has set his face towards Jerusalem. And Acts 19, 21, just before the riot at Ephesus, we read that Paul reserved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And then in 2016, we read that Paul was hastening to be at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Was Paul just being stubborn and wanting to head for Jerusalem? Was he being foolhardy and rejecting the warnings that have been made by the Holy Spirit? Well, in 2022, we see what was motivating him. He says, and now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what's going to happen to me there. So Paul didn't have the full picture, but he knew he was going to suffer in Jerusalem. And the picture unfolded through the prophecies, including especially the prophecy of of Agabus. But this was not to dissuade Paul from going to Jerusalem. It was to prepare Paul for going to Jerusalem. To strengthen his resolve to go to Jerusalem. Again, this, this, this picture of Paul's suffering goes all the way back to his call. Back in Acts 9, 6. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you were to do. And then in verses 15 and 16, the Lord said that Ananias, go for Paul as a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name back before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Like the other apostles in Acts 1.8, Paul is being commissioned as a witness for Jesus Christ. And his mission would take it before Gentiles and kings, as we'll see later in Acts. And his mission would bring him before Caesar in Rome. But now the best intentions of those who love Paul were a temptation to him. As Dennis Johnson says, their their tears hammered Paul's heart, assaulting his resistance by appeal to his affection for them all. Now we know that that Paul was no stranger to suffering. He'd been maligned and beaten and, and imprisoned for Christ's sake repeatedly almost everywhere that he went. He lists many of the things that he suffered in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked in danger in, the, in the, the country, in danger in the city, in anguish for his, his, his own people. And by God's grace, Paul wasn't afraid of it. Remember in Acts chapter 14, after he was stoned in Lystra, what did he do? He turned around and went back to the city in verse 22 and strengthened the disciples encouraged them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Like we read in Romans chapter 8, that those who suffer with Christ will be glorified with Christ. 
And now suffering is not a means of our salvation, but suffering is a means of our sanctification. It is in, in suffering that we grow in Christ-likeness through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But here, Paul didn't go to suffer for the sake of suffering. Paul wasn't a masochist. Paul didn't enjoy suffering any more than anyone else. And we've seen also in testimony of Scripture where Paul was willing to avoid suffering where necessary. In Acts chapter 9, he was let down from the city wall in a basket in order to, being, in order to prevent being imprisoned in Damascus. And we just saw a couple weeks ago in Acts chapter 20 how when he, when he got wind of the Jews' plan to kill him at sea, he left Corinth on foot to avoid the suffering. So the Apostle Paul was, was willing to suffer or to not suffer according to the will of God in order to advance the gospel of God. And here, by the strength of the Holy Spirit, Paul did not succumb to the temptation. He stood firm. And when the people that saw that he could not be persuaded to change his course, they ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Finally, in verses 15 and 16, Paul makes this final trip from Caesarea to Jerusalem. So Paul and his companions got ready and they, they prepared to, and made this 100-kilometer trip back to the city of Jerusalem. And interestingly, some of the brothers from Caesarea joined them. They arrived at the house of Nason, who were told was an early convert who, who like Philip, showed them hospitality and they, they were able to dwell there. This is Paul's final steps on his final missionary journey at this point, his third missionary journey. He has repeatedly heard from the Spirit what's going to happen in Jerusalem, and by the Spirit, he is prepared for what is going to come. Boldly, Paul will testify to Jesus, whatever the result. Again, here, this is the, the, the end of, of, Paul's, of, of Paul's third missionary journey. As we reflect, Paul has been used of God to spread the gospel from Damascus and the Nabataean kingdom in the east into Israel, Cilicia, Galatia, Asia Minor, Bithynia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Rome and the islands of Crete and Malta on his three missionary journeys. He's traveled over 16,000 kilometers. He's going to reach Rome, as he said he must do in in Acts 19, he'll reach Rome in AD 60, three, about three years later. And although he'll reach Rome in Roman custody, he's going to have significant freedom to minister there. In Acts 60, um, after Acts in, in AD 62, he's going to be set free from Roman imprisonment. Probably his, his house arrest while he was there. And he's going to engage in further missions work. He possibly went all the way to Spain, another thousand kilometers to the west until he is martyred by Caesar Nero in A.D. 66. When we see the, the sufferings of the Apostle Paul, we do get, get a glimpse. We get a, we get a glimpse of the sanctification of, of Paul as, as he begins to understand that, that he, is him, he understands himself as the chief of sinners towards the end of his life. So there is a sense in which we, we do get to witness Paul's sanctification. We also see that in each other's lives. As we walk through trials with our brothers and sisters, as, as we, we, we walk alongside each other, and as we, we, we talk and we, we more importantly listen to each other and we pray for each other, we, we get to see each other grow in Christ-likeness through those trials. And God is certainly doing that in the Apostle Paul's trials. Again, we don't, we don't see this happening generally overnight. This, is, this takes years and years. I was saying to somebody the other day, it's like we do, you don't see your children grow. All of a sudden it's like, whoa, what happened? You shut up. The same is often true of our sanctification. But there's something else that the Apostle Paul was doing and achieving in his suffering. 
We've talked about this before, but, but I, I think this is really amazing. Let's please just turn in your, with me in your scriptures to, to Colossians chapter 1. To Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Have you seen that before? Paul says that in his sufferings, he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now you'll be thinking, hang on a second here. Jesus Christ, when he gave up his life on the cross, he said, it is finished. He's accomplished everything that is necessary for our salvation. So what does Paul mean here when he says he's filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? Again, for the sake of his body, that is the church. It says, of which it became a minister according to the stewardship of God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So what's happening here? The Apostle Paul's suffering in front of these people who had never witnessed the sufferings of Christ was a picture. Not unlike Agabus acting out the prophecy with, with Paul's belt. The sufferings of the Apostle Paul demonstrated, in for, demonstrated before these people who had never seen the sufferings of Christ what it means to suffer as a Christian. And in so doing, the Apostle Paul was a picture of the sufferings of Christ. Now, where do I get that from this passage? Let's, let's just track back as we think about, about what's happened here. Again, Paul isn't dead yet. We've got a lot of ground to cover before we reach the end of Acts. Paul doesn't die in Jerusalem, and neither will you. But just as the Apostle Paul died, you will die one day. Will you die embracing God's plan for your life or fighting against it? Again, this is, this is not a, a carte blanche just to say, go and suffer. Right? We see this in the early church. They, why do you think the early church met in catacombs? Because they didn't want to get arrested. They didn't want to suffer persecution because of what the Romans were doing in, in throwing Christians to the lions. Earlier we prayed for, for our brothers and sisters in China. One of the leaders who was arrested at that camp testified, we are willing for the word of the Lord to spread quickly. Listen, even if our interests will suffer as a result. Therefore, we in this church have also been gathering in the name of the Lord and making it as public as possible. There's a time to meet in a catacomb and there's a time to meet as publicly as possible. May the Lord give us wisdom and discernment to know when to do what. But again, how do you do that? How do you embrace God's plan for your life, even if it means suffering, even if it means walking through the suffering that you are facing at this very moment? You do so in the same way Paul did, in the power of the Holy Spirit. You do so in the same way Paul did, focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's think back over, over the, this chapter and, and what we've seen earlier. Over the past two chapters, we've seen again and again that Paul has set his face toward Jerusalem and then toward Rome where he meet his, where he meet his end. Who does that remind you of? The Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke 9.53, we were told that the Lord Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And then for the final year of his ministries, he's traveling around. He's still doing so with his face set towards Jerusalem. 
Luke will repeat the same thing in Luke 13, 33, and 17, 22, and 18, 31, and 19, 11. And Luke here is intentionally making the connection between Paul and Jesus. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem where he would die. And Paul sets his face toward Jerusalem and Rome where he would die. Also in this passage, think about 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 Paul's friends, including Luke. They, they tried to dissuade him. Said, don't go. We don't want you to suffer. We don't want you to die. Again, it was well-intentioned, but it was a temptation to divert Paul from his path. Does that sound familiar? Who does that remind you of? the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 16. In, in Matthew 16, remember, in verse 13 and uh, in verses 13 to 20, when Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter on, the, on this rock. I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then, in verse 21, as Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day be raised, Peter. said, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus replied, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Again, Luke is drawing another clear connection between the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. And then, Paul was delivered into the hands of the Jews who would deliver him over to the Romans. Does that sound familiar? Does that remind you of anyone? Again, the Lord Jesus Christ. As he was delivered by the Jews to the Romans for execution by crucifixion. Paul wants us to see, or rather Luke wants us to see that Paul was following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ on the path of suffering. So when he asks, what's the key? How, how, do you, how, how do you learn to accept and even to embrace suffering, your own suffering and the suffering of those you love? In the same way that those disciples did with Paul in Acts 21. May the will of the Lord be done. May the will of the Lord be done. Again, does this remind you of anyone? Again, the Lord Jesus Christ in Gethsemane in Luke twenty two forty two, 42, saying, if Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. And this, brothers and sisters, is the way to peace. This is not fatalism. This is entrusting yourself and your loved ones to the will of God. He is truly sovereign. He is in control of all things. There's not one rogue molecule in all of, of his creation. as we've been talking about from the 1699 London Baptist Confession, God does not confer with anyone. God's will is not thwarted or changed by anyone. He has his determinate plan. He is sovereign. But he's not just sovereign, he's also loving. Brother, sister, he loves you. He loves those who love him 
with the very love that he has for his son. Do you want to know God's love for you? He sent his son to die for your sins. This is the love of God. So then you can understand that God is sovereign, God is loving, and God is also wise. That he's achieving all things, accomplishing all things for his glory and for your good. Again, do you want to understand that? Look at the cross. How he took the most horrific, the most wicked thing that has ever happened in the history of eternity with, with man seeking to kill God. Yeah, this was God's sovereign plan from eternity past. It was the will of the Lord that he would be put to grief. He suffered for our sins. This was God's plan. This was not plan B. God is sovereign and God is loving and God is wise. And so as you consider the sovereignty and the love and the wisdom of God, especially as it is presented to you in the gospel, as you reframe everything in your experience through gospel glasses, You're able to submit yourself to the will of God. Again, not having a full picture, not understanding necessarily what, what all the, in the ins and outs of what God is doing, but you can trust him. You can trust him. And so you can pray as Jesus taught us to pray. Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is what it means to trust Christ. To, to trust him for our salvation and to walk in that trust by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we recognize that we fail. We recognize that we, we want to grab control again and we, we try to, to, to avoid suffering. It's, it's natural. And we worry about suffering. It's natural. But as we confess those things to God, and ask his forgiveness, we turn back to the gospel, back to the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins, even for the sin of lacking in trust in God. And as we go grow in that trust, as we go in that trust, we can pray like the words of, and the words of Betty Scott Stam, missionary to China. Lord, I give up my own plans and purposes, all my own desires, hopes, and ambitions, and accept thy will for my life. I give up myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee to be thine forever. I hand over to thy keeping all my friendships, all the people in my love are to take second place in my heart. Fill me now and seal me by thy Holy Spirit. Work out the whole will in my life at any cost. For me to live is Christ. Amen. Betty Scott Stam and her husband were martyred in China during the Boxer Rebellion. She lived and she died that prayer and she rose again to a new life with Jesus Christ. This was the Apostle Paul's hope and this is our hope. As the Apostle Paul said in, at, the, at the very end of his life in, in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, for I'm ready, already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all those who have, to all those also who have loved his appearing. I began by reading the poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade. And brothers and sisters, we are the light brigade. Like the Apostle Paul, we are shining the light of Christ in this present darkness. Like the Apostle Paul, we are riding into the jaws of death. Like the Apostle Paul, death will not defeat us. Death cannot defeat us. For like Paul, we follow where our captain has gone before. 
This was no mistake. This was God's plan from eternity past. He has won the victory for us. He has died for us. He has defeated hell for us. And all the world will wonder, for his glory will never fade, nor ours, for all eternity. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, We bow our knees before you, almighty God. As you charged into the jaws of death, not because of your sin, but because of our sin. As it wasn't just for the last year of your ministry that you set your face towards Jerusalem, but from eternity past in the the covenant of redemption that you made with the Father, you charged towards death. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you charged through those gates and you won the victory in your substitutionary death. You died in our place, bearing the punishment that we deserve. And you rose again on the third day victorious over sin and hell and Satan that you were raised on the third day for our justification and for your vindication. And we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are reigning and that you are ruling and that one day, perhaps one day soon, Lord Jesus, you will return and we will be glorified. You will take us to be with you forever. Lord, haste the day of your return. Come, Lord Jesus. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that in that in the meanwhile, as we eagerly await and anticipate your return, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would empower us, Lord, to walk faithfully, to walk joyfully, and to embrace whatever you have for us, not because we enjoy struggles and trials, but because we know that you are our sovereign God. And that through our example, Others will be spurred on to love and good deeds. Lord, we can't do that on our own. We can't do any of this on our own apart from your strength within us. So strengthen us, strengthen us for, for these tasks, for your glory. Forgiveness for we fail. Help us to walk in obedience for your glory and for the building of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.